is Very Public Affairs, the podcast of the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. Here's your host. Welcome to Very Public Affairs. I'm your host, Cameron Chu, analyst at the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Michael Green, Chief Executive Officer of the US Study Centre at the University of Sydney. Dr. Green was our keynote speaker at our recent 2023 Heads of Function and Senior Practitioners Roundtable Dinner, and this interview was recorded prior to his address about Australia, the US and China, and the current state of international relations in the Indo-Pacific. Dr. Green, what is your assessment of Australia's foreign policy strategy in the Indo-Pacific before and after the election of the Albanese government? Well, the great strength of Australian foreign policy strategy right now is its continuity. The Labor government seemed to run on a policy of not fundamentally changing the foreign policy and defense approaches of the previous Morrison government, even as they savaged them on other issues. And it was good electoral politics because the Australian public generally is in agreement that it's a more geopolitically challenging environment, that the alliance with the U.S. matters, that Australia needs to strengthen its ties with other powers, especially Japan and India. And so the continuity is a real strength. In foreign policy strategy, continuity matters. It allows you to implement. It allows you to build trust. It allows you to build alignment and partnership with other countries. And of course, the bipartisanship is a demonstration of resolve, of will. And I think after Beijing engaged in pretty unprecedented and egregious foreign interference in Australian politics and economic embargoes on Australia. The fact that there is bipartisan support for an approach that frankly stands up for Australia's sovereignty is a very powerful signal to the rest of the world. So I'm a fan of the foreign policy, broadly speaking. I think there's some big challenges and some big uh, decisions coming, but I think the trajectory is good. I won't claim to speak for every American, but I think most Americans who follow the region are impressed. In an article you published, you described President Biden's recent trip to Asia in January as a success. How is the state of U.S. relations within the Indo-Pacific, and especially with nations such as Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam and Japan, with which China is escalating disputes about sovereignty of islands in the South China Sea? Every country in the Indo-Pacific region wants better and closer relationships with the United States, with the probable exception of North Korea, Russia, and in some ways China. But every other country wants more of the U.S., not less. It's especially true for our historic treaty allies like Australia and Japan and Korea. All the polls show that. The agreements between governments to cooperate on everything from defense capability building to infrastructure financing in the region to diplomacy and technology cooperation all indicate that. The countries that have not historically been U.S. allies uh, vary. India is moving closer to the U.S., no doubt about it. Despite a non-aligned tradition, the Chinese use of force against the Indians in the Himalayan mountains and geopolitical encroachment on India's historic spheres of influence have pushed India much closer to the U.S. and, of course, Australia and Japan. The Philippines, which people were unsure of, a, a treaty ally, but one with a complicated history with the U.S., under the new president, Mr. Marcos, has moved very close to the U.S. on defense issues. But other countries are being more guarded and careful. Indonesia is a good example. There is more cooperation, defense, diplomacy, economic, educational within Indonesia, but Indonesia's non-aligned tradition is is strong and deep, and Indonesia is not moving precipitously one way or the other in this geopolitical competition. Other countries in Southeast Asia would be in a similar vein, Malaysia, for example. But the fact is that when you look at the major economies and major military powers in this region, after China, and of course Russia, if you consider them part of the Indo-Pacific, every single one is strengthening its cooperation with the U.S. You look at the next biggest economies, Japan, India, Korea, Australia, they're all moving closer. The global south, the developing countries have a complicated history with the West and with the developed world and are not going to choose sides in the end unless some cases forced to, perhaps the Philippines because of Chinese encroachment. So considering that the global south is not going to choose sides, I think Biden's done very well. He's done very well in terms of strengthening partnerships. 
There are weaknesses. The Biden administration has a pretty unimpressive strategy for trade policy and still has to corral resources in Washington. But on the whole, the Biden administration has done well on the back of bipartisan consensus. He's a very different politician from Donald Trump, but his policy is not all that different in this region, actually. What's your view on China's claim that it is not an expansive power and simply wants to reunite what has historically been China, which includes Tibet, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and some islands in the South China Sea? Well, if Japan and the Philippines and Vietnam and India and others did not live inside of China's uh, sphere of influence, then yes, they would not be an expansionist power. But the fact is all those countries are in the way. If China is insisting that they get out of the way, they can't. They're in the first island chain. India's in the Himalayan mountains. And so this idea of rejuvenating the Chinese nation, creating a whole China, it is revanchism. It is expansionism because there are now democracies, independent states, and cultures and socially cohesive peoples like the Uyghurs and the Tibetans who didn't sign up for that. And it's remarkable how unsympathetic, uh, unresponsive Zheng Nanghai, the Chinese leadership compound, is to this fact and how obsessed they are with their own narrative and their own domestic um, political base of legitimacy. And as a result, they are driving lots of countries to the U.S. If you had a different Chinese leadership, there was enormous opportunity for China and Australia to have a very, very rich and close relationship, or China and the UK, even China and Japan, despite historical differences. It did not have to be this way, but particularly under Xi Jinping, China's on a strategic trajectory, which is both self-pitying and overconfident. And it's terrible strategy, and I don't see Xi changing. And the rest of us have to manage it. We don't look for conflict with China, but we're just going to have to protect our interests. International relations in the Indo-Pacific are often framed in a bipolar contest between China and the US. With the rise of joint security declarations such as AUKUS and Quad, of which Australia plays a central role, South Korea's recent Indo-Pacific strategy, and the strategic movements of Japan and the Philippines, could a minilateral Indo-Pacific environment be a more accurate description? Many scholars and policymakers and business leaders around the world, including in the United States, including in Australia, pretty much everywhere other than Japan, have felt for some time that we are moving towards a bipolar order in Asia, if not the world, where the first and second largest economy, the U.S. and China, China became the second largest economy 12 years ago, and now determine everything, and that this is the structure of international relations. I have fought that my whole career. It is analytically wrong, but it's also a dangerous assumption for the United States or Australia or others to make. Why? Because Beijing's argument is that the world globally is multipolar, and the poles are China, the U.S., Europe, and Russia. In other words, favorable to China. And within the Indo-Pacific, the Chinese argument is that it's bipolar, it's U.S. and China. And therefore, as the Chinese leadership argued in the 2013 new model of great power relations, therefore countries like Australia, Japan, India, Indonesia, Korea are largely irrelevant. And I've argued for a long time, and I'm quite gratified to see that U.S. policy now, on a broad bipartisan basis, and I think in Australia as well, is based on the idea, no, the U.S. is the most powerful country in the world, but within Asia, this is not a bipolar system where the U.S. and China determine everything. It's a multipolar system within Asia, where the votes of an India or an Australia or a Japan count for a lot. And that is a very favorable thing for the U.S. because we can be fairly confident in Washington that all of these other polls, the big ones, are not going to choose China over the U.S. They may not align with the U.S. on everything. They may not do our bidding. They may frustrate us. We may frustrate them. But they are not looking for a sinocentric system in the Indo-Pacific. So multipolarity serves U.S. strategic interests, and it really serves Australia's interests because it allows Australia to build relationships with Japan especially, but also India, increasingly Korea, that help them manage relations with Beijing. But also with Washington. Because I can tell you from years in the Pentagon and the White House, when Australia comes in alone, they get a hearing. When Australia comes in with Japan and Korea, boy, you can't ignore that. 
So multipolarity in this region, there's no easy equilibrium. It's not stable. There's lots of maneuvering. It's not a bad chessboard for the Australian foreign policy to play on in what I should add is a very perilous time. You are listening to a podcast from the Center for Corporate Public Affairs, a membership-based organization comprising companies, industry associations, and government departments across Asia-Pacific. The Center works with its members and other entities to apply best practice to extend their social license to operate. The Center develops and delivers executive education globally, conducts research, and provides specialist consulting services. How is the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine having an impact on international relations in the Indo-Pacific, specifically on how China may view Taiwan as a rogue province? Well, it's a lovely Friday afternoon, and I unfortunately am going to have to spend part of my weekend writing a 5,000-word essay on exactly that question. First, it demonstrated to publics in Australia and Japan, Taiwan, Korea, elsewhere, that war is possible. That in the 21st century, the kind of invasion and subjugation or attempted subjugation of a free country, a free people, is possible. And that has added a realism and a bit of urgency and a bit of sadness to how the Australian or Korean or Japanese or American public views their own defense, their own capabilities. And it's why you have increases in defense spending. For the first time in Australia in decades, the public now in some polls supports increased defense spending. Japan's public support's going to 2% of GDP. People know it's a dangerous world. That's a big impact. It's what has accelerated support for things like AUKUS and defense cooperation. That's the first big impact on all of us. It has also demonstrated where China stands in global affairs. China's de facto diplomatic and geopolitical support and economic support for Russia is a real downer. It's a real bucket of cold water on those who thought China was moving in a direction of general convergence with upholding the international system despite many disagreements, and particularly in Europe which where obviously the Ukraine fight is closer to home, China's stance has really burst the bubble. Uh, There are still plenty of industrialists and politicians, especially in Germany, who cannot grow their economy without China. They're not looking to decouple. But the political risk China represents is now really evident. And it's also demonstrated that, uh, unfortunately, that collaboration on global challenges is just harder. North Korea is making hay of the geopolitical tension since Ukraine because we, the U.S. or Japan or Australia or Korea, we can't get Russia and China to help us. The fight among the big powers, the geopolitics, gives Kim Jong-un and the North Koreans room to make a lot of mischief, and they are. They're testing ICBMs again. They're probably on the cusp of another nuclear test. And then you add things like climate and other challenges that are global, like pandemics, and it's just harder to cooperate. So all quite significant, in some ways depressing. I would end, though, by saying, although it shows that war is possible, a country like Russia can attack Ukraine out of the blue, and therefore China might do the same. Although it shows all of that, I think it also helpfully reinforces Chinese caution on Taiwan. I really think it does. First, because invasions can go badly, as you know, the U.S. could have told the Chinese after Iraq, but as the Russians have really learned, but even more fundamentally for the Chinese, because they think they're better than the Russians, what it showed was that 50%, 60% of the global economic power in the world will turn against you. And the U.S. or Europe or Australia is not going to embargo China quite the way we did Russia, but there's a demonstration now that the free world can impose a big economic cost. So I think those things, despite the bad news, in my view, some people think it makes China more desperate to use force. I don't think so. I think it causes more caution in Beijing because of what Russia is now experiencing at the hands of many economies and democracies around the world. Since China placed anti-dumping and trade bans on some Australian ports, there's been considerable commentary here about our relationship with China being binary. We either need to be all the way with the US or neutral and ambiguous in how we see China's more assertive foreign policy, especially regarding Hong Kong and Taiwan. What position do you think is most practical and strategic for Australia? 
I remember when I was working for the White House, I was senior advisor to President George W. Bush, and John Howard visited in 2005, and a journalist asked him this exact question. And Howard had a little twinkle in his eye, and he said something like, we look forward to continuing strengthening our historic alliance and shared values with the United States while making a lot of money from China, or something like that. And that's the policy. We surveyed the American and Australian public about China. Significant majorities, about two-thirds of Australians and Americans, say we have to reduce our economic dependence on China in technology and other areas. But only less than 20% of Americans or Australians want complete decoupling. Western Australia, they don't want decoupling. Soybean farmers in Ohio or Illinois, they don't want decoupling. Consumers who go to Costco in America and buy goods made in China, they don't want decoupling. And so it is still possible to enjoy the benefits of the largest middle class in the world. China's middle class is larger than the American population, while simultaneously protecting ourselves in areas of technology, because the Chinese side has demonstrated that they will use data against us, and they have used that they'll weaponize trade, as they did against Australia. And so we'll see supply chain shifting, we'll see advanced technology not going to China, but I don't think we're going to see a complete breakdown of economic relations. No one wants that, most of all the Chinese. Finally, what is your view of what the corporate sector should be pushing for in Australia's relationship with China? The corporate sector in Australia has to be a little bit careful about not portraying relations with China as binary. There are American CEOs, especially in Hollywood or the NBA, the National Basketball Association, who really regret making binary arguments now in the current context. Really regret it. Wish they had never said China's fine, everything's fine. So the, the first thing for business in Australia is be really careful about the narratives. It is possible to protect sovereign interests, to protect advanced technology, and still have a productive relationship, and especially productive business relationship. But Binary choices, very bad narrative for business in the U.S., and I suspect that's increasingly going to be true for Australia. You may have seen that one of the senior intelligence uh, officials gave a major speech, the annual intelligence summary, Mr. Burgess, where he basically singled out Australian businesses and warned them to be careful <laughs> because the public in our polling and in other polling is not sympathetic to that view anymore. So that's the first thing. Think about how you talk about China. The second thing is push for progress, but do it quietly. You know, look for pragmatic steps forward to resume trade, to cooperate, especially for Australia. It's less risky than the U.S. because exporting natural resources is not as, as risky as collaborating on advanced technology, which the U.S., Japan, and Europe got stuck doing. So the second thing is look for pragmatic ways to make progress with China. And the third thing, frankly, is to look at China in more than a bilateral context. The decisions about how to trade with China, about technology dependence on China, about investment screen. Meaning these are not decisions being made in a bubble in Canberra. They're being made in active dialogue with the United States, with Japan, especially those two, but also Korea and Europe and Canada and India. And I think businesses in the U.S., where all of this hit a bit earlier, and government relations experts in the U.S. made a big mistake thinking that they could understand U.S.-China relations in a very narrow bilateral context. This is a multipolar region. It's a multiplayer game. So um, I think government relations experts are going to have to broaden their horizons and be prepared for disruptive change that may not come from China. It could come from Taiwan. It could come from the United States. So a much broader aperture than probably people have been used to. Thanks, Dr. Green, for your time and your insights. And thank you, listeners, for your company. We'll be back soon in our next episode of Very Public Affairs, the regular podcast of the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. Until next time. If you enjoyed this episode of Very Public Affairs, subscribe in iTunes and leave a review. For more, visit the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs website at www.accpa.com.au.